Hi, this is John Warlow, the author of The Automatic Customer and Built to Sell. You're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal in this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's working in modern marketing to help make you a more successful marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. I'm going to do that for you, and you can find them at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, I'm joined by John Warlow, author of The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry. John Warlow is the creator of the Value Builder System, where advisors help company owners increase the value of their business. Previously, he founded Warlow & Company, a subscription-based research business dedicated to helping Fortune 500 companies market to small business owners. He is a sought-after speaker and popular Inc.com columnist and is also the author of Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You. Now, in the book, John doesn't talk about himself a whole lot, but there was one part I wanted to quote. I've started a few businesses in my life. I've had a radio production business, a design agency, an events company, a quantitative research business, and a software company. I'm involved in my second subscription business, and while subscription businesses are in many ways more rewarding than the others, they are also more challenging in many aspects. John, congratulations on The Automatic Customer, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Douglas. So tell us the story of what led to this book. Well, you know, I wrote this book, Built to Sell, a few years ago, and it talks about how do you sort of change a business so that it can be a sellable asset. So many businesses today are are deeply dependent on their owner, and they're really not uh, they're not sellable. And so I I wrote this book, and in in retrospect. When I looked at the statistics on what drives the value of a business, I gave short shrift to the idea that it's recurring revenue that is so very important to to the value of your business. And so, um, you know, you mentioned my day job is to run this company called Value Builder Systems. So we, uh, you know, we look at the stuff all the time. And so I felt like we really needed to to do a book on how do you create some recurring revenue, not only because it improves the value of your business, but it also obviously uh, makes your business a lot less stressful to run, more predictable, et cetera. So the book has uh, three parts for the listener. Uh, the beginning is why subscribers are better than customers, which we'll get into. And then you go into pretty deep detail about the nine subscription business models. So you can look through and see which one applies to you or which ones you might be able to borrow from. And then at the end, and there will be math, <laughs> there is, uh, it's all about building your subscription business. Uh, hard, uh, I got the impression those were hard learned lessons. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, the <laughs> statistics are really where it all comes together. So, you know, understanding, uh, we, we can talk about it later, but, you know, the idea of LTV to CAC is one of those kind mm-hmm. of major ratios that any uh, subscription company operator looks at. So, so, how does selling a subscription differ from selling a one-off product or service? You know, with a subscription, I think you're you're proposing marriage. It's a 
uh, it's a relationship that's going to be a long-term relationship. I mean, when you subscribe to Netflix, as an example, uh, you're not just subscribing to, to, to watch one episode of House of Cards. You're subscribing, and you, you, you hope that you will subscribe for months. And Netflix, hopefully, you know, hopefully you're going to subscribe for years. And so what you need to do, I think, as a marketer is make the, the case to your customer that, uh, that what they get for subscribing is many, many times better than what they would get by buying a la carte. And so that's the real secret. I call it the difference between 10x and 10%. Nobody's going to subscribe to just save 10% off of buying a la carte. But if you could make the case that they're actually going to save you know, enormously, meaning you know, the value proposition is 10 times better by subscribing, that's where you start to get, I think, quite a bit of uptake on a subscription model. Okay. And what are some examples of automatic customer businesses beyond Netflix and Amazon Prime? In other words, uh, is this just for multi-million dollar companies or venture-backed firms? Well, it's really working very well for those very large companies like AMC, like Amazon, like Starbucks. But really, I think why I wrote the book is that it's it's best used by smaller businesses and more entrepreneurial companies because they're the ones who get impacted so greatly by the lumpy uh, sort of you know up and down roller coaster of running a small business. And so, yeah, I think every business in any industry can do that. I'll give you a couple of examples. Again, there are nine different subscription models uh, in, the, in the book, but the, um, the one that comes to mind out of the gate is a, is a company called Hassle-Free Homes. What they do is they manage your home. So if you've got a double income family, uh, you know, no time to for the honeydew list on the weekends. They go in and manage the house preemptively. They, you know, change the light bulbs, they change the furnace filter in the fall, etc. And they do it all on a subscription basis. You pay them a couple hundred bucks a year, just a couple hundred bucks a month, excuse me, and they will manage your home for them. Well, what Jim Vigonis gets as the guy who runs hassle-free homes is he gets predictable revenue. And so unlike most contractors who never know what their next job is going to be, never know whether they're going to be working 16 hours or four hours tomorrow, he knows he can predict the number of people he needs, the number of vans he needs on the street, et cetera, you know, months, even years in advance, because he knows how many subscribers he has. Um, that's just one example of many. In reading the book, I was amazed at how many subscriptions I have. <laughs> I started realizing, wait a minute, I'm, I'm actually paying for an awful lot of subscriptions here. It's, it's like they snuck up on me, and I didn't realize it until I, uh, I read your book, like my HVAC company. I, I'm paying uh, 35 bucks a month for three zones to them. And uh, what that does is it, I call them first, and then when there's something wrong, they're there to fix it. And I, in the book, you talk about that with this, uh, this same company you just mentioned, how when something larger comes along, they're the ones that are contacted because they've got a, uh, a good relationship with the customer to begin with. It's one of the Trojan horses or kind of secret sauce of running a subscription company that not a lot of people talk about, and that is that... You know, the subscription itself can be a lot a lost leader for you. It creates a direct relationship with the customer. It gives you permission to communicate with them on a regular basis, and they, they you know they have a relationship with you, even if it's to your point, you know, thirty five bucks a month, not a huge amount of money. But who are you going to call when the furnace needs to be replaced in twenty years? The people I'm already the, paying. Yeah, <laughs> because it's one call, it's one email. They know you. You you've, they've got your credit card already, and you have a rapport and a relationship. And it's one. Big reason that Amazon Prime is is such a big bet for Amazon. They've got something like four um, 
uh, million, or sorry, 40 million subscribers now. It, it's because when someone subscribes to Prime, it makes them more likely to buy things from Amazon. They want to get their money's worth, and they've got this direct relationship with this, the company. So you know, it changes consumers' behavior for the better. In the book, you talk about uh, eight reasons subscribers are better than customers. Uh, can you go through some of those? Number one, subscribers make your company more valuable. Uh, obviously, when an acquirer looks at a company, they're going to say, where's the revenue going to go when you leave? And the more subscribers or more recurring revenue you have, the better. Um, it also makes your, the lifetime value of a customer so much better. You know, If you think about the difference between a traditional flower store, where an average purchase may be $40 or $50 for a bouquet, and H. Bloom, a subscription-based flower company that sells one subscription to flowers, to hotels and spas, and then every two weeks they replenish them on a subscription basis, the average lifetime value of an H. Bloom customer is more than four grand. And you know, in, in the book, uh, John, excuse me to interrupt, there, you talk about this florist, and that was one of the last kind of businesses that I would think would work for a subscription business. And it talked about how it affected everything. They didn't need high-priced uh, uh, retail space. Uh, they were able to manage their inventory and, and all that type of thing. Perhaps you could say a little bit more about that, that company. Yeah, no, H. Bloom is a fascinating company, and you're absolutely right. The average flower store in America, traditional flower store, you go where, you know, the, on your anniversary, you forgot some, to get your wife a gift or whatever, you, they, they will throw out 50%, 5-0% of their inventory every month because it rots in the fridge. H. Bloom, because its customers are subscribers, and they know that that hotel is going to want six tulips on their reception desk on May 15th, they know that going in. They throw at less than 2% of their inventory. I just found that amazing. Right there. It's just a huge dramatic difference between you know, the benefits to the, the, the business of having subscribers. And by the way, Douglas, one of the un, unspoken things here is that it also benefits the consumer because H. Bloom knows how many subscribers it has, how many, how many flowers it needs to buy. They don't go through the, t the typical delivery supply chain of flower stores where they buy them from distributors who buy them from wholesalers. By the time your flower gets to a flower store, it's two weeks old. H. Bloom buys them from the farmer. And so within two days of cutting the flower from the farmer's field, it's on your reception table. Guess what? That means your flowers last two or three weeks longer than if you bought them at a flower. So there's benefits to the consumer as well as to the business. Well, and, and you talk about that where the consumer has to sense that there's a much better value for them. One of the other things you talked about, which I was surprised by, was the it cuts the cost of customer market research. And you mm. talk about how subscription-based companies have so much data that it makes them uh, operate more efficiently. And you even talked about how Walmart has done this. It's amazing. Walmart was was really getting getting in trouble in the snack category. They, you know, uh, we go to Walmart and many of us buy, you know, the large style, uh, you know, snacks goods. But they were starting to shrink and shrink in terms of our market share because they were they were putting on the shelves these snacks that people didn't want, Snickers bars and so forth. And our tastes for snacks have changed. With so many more of us are gluten free or paleo or you know all the different thing, you know, dietary requirements people have nowadays. Um, Walmart was losing its shirt in the snacking category, so it said, "I'm not going to do that anymore. We're going to figure out what people want in the way of snacks." And so. So they created their own little skunk works division. It was called Goodies. 
And for $7 a month, you could subscribe. And every month, you would get a surprise box full of samples of different snacks. And the deal was that if you went on Walmart's website and rated the snacks that you liked and took a picture of them and described what you liked about them or what you didn't like about them, your next box was free. Because Walmart wasn't really keen on or interested in the seven bucks a month from a few thousand subscribers. What they wanted was the data. Mm-hmm. So it gives you that free market research. I mean, Netflix knows before it greenlights the third season of House of Cards, it knows that you're going to love that show because of the fact that you rated the West Wing five stars. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the kind of information. When I get an email from Netflix, I, I, I open it because <laughs> their recommendations are so spot on. It's it's scary, but I'm I'm happy that they they you know know about the preference and they know about the the type of thing I like. Uh, in the book, you mentioned that, metaphorically speaking, a traditional business requires more brawn, while a subscription business requires more brain. Can you talk more about that? You know, in a lot of businesses, uh, in particular smaller businesses, the entrepreneur is the rainmaker, right? They are the they're the brawn of the business. They are they're you know when when sales are down, they personally go pick up the phone and make a sale. Force of will. Uh, yeah, just you know, they're, they're just a force of will, a character, the persona. They get the business done, and and so for a lot of entrepreneurial businesses, you know, if you're willing to put in the time and put in the hour and put yourself out there, they're reasonably you know easy to kind of get get off the ground to a few hundred thousand in sales or maybe a million in sales. But the challenge becomes when you start to try to make the business more sophisticated, productize the business, um, set up a set of uh, consistent products that you don't customize and that you start to put them on a subscription basis, all of a sudden you can't go out and win you know, a, new, a new customer just to make your month. Now you've got to deal with thousands of subscribers. Typically you're billing small little charges on a credit card once a month as opposed to getting a big invoice sent to a customer. Now you've got thousands of credit cards. You've got to deal with the complexity of all of them have different expiry dates. All of them have different you know, uh, limits and credit limits and so forth. You've got the complexity of now, you know, when you want to send an email or change a pricing plan, it's affecting thousands of people as opposed to just a couple. You know, a lot of small businesses start and they're great at doing one or two things and the, and, and they're, and the customers see that and they start to ask the business to do more and more things. And pretty soon the business owner is sort of, a, 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 you know, selling lots of things to a few customers. And the most valuable businesses actually flip that on its head and sell a few things to lots of customers. And that's really the essence of a subscription model. Mm-hmm. One of the examples in the book that, again, was just so surprising was an elevator company. Can you tell that story? Mm. Tri-State Elevator, yeah. New York-based company. And again, this goes back to one of the other benefits of a subscription company is it makes your company less susceptible to a recession. And, and, and Tri-State learned this the hard way. In the early 90s, we went through the major recession in New York, and Tri-State were in the business of installing elevators. And what happens in a recession? Well, all of the building gets stopped, right? The you know, financing dries up. Nobody's installing elevators. And they had to lay off most of their staff. And it gets pretty ugly, uh, and it gets ugly competitively, too. 
Oh yeah, and 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 suddenly all the OEMs that were you know are, are that, that are huge you know original, original equipment manufacturers are bidding for these jobs. They're doing them for below just to keep the guys busy. And and this little you know third party uh, provider had no chance. And they had 15 or so staff. They let most of their guys go in the early 90s. Jump forward uh, after the recession ended, they went and said, never again, never again are we going to deal with a recession like this. And so what they did was decided to change their model. And instead of installing elevators, they focused on the installation, excuse me, the servicing of elevators. So they said, we're going to let Otis go out there and install the elevators. But what we're going to do is we're going to service them on a subscription basis. So every month... We're going to come and make sure the pulleys are greased and the lights are working and the placards up to date and all that jazz. And we're going to pay. We're going to charge a small amount for that. It's the unsexy underbelly of the elevator business, but we're going to do it happily with you know with a smile on our face. And we're going to build just once per month to do that. And so they get to the night to the 2008 recession, where again virtually all new building stopped in New York. They sailed right through without having to lay off a single staff member because they had these delicious service contracts. While you may stop the installation of a revenue, uh, an installation of an elevator in a recession, you're certainly not going to stop servicing them. It's illegal. And, and so subscriptions can take the hardest edges off a recession in your business. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk about how you are now competing in the new subscription economy, and it's up to you to decide if you're playing defense or offense. Are there examples of companies that just ignored this at their own peril? Yeah, you know, it comes back to the idea that these very large Fortune 500 companies are very much moving to the subscription business model. I mean, Apple now has an Apple Care product, Apple One to One. They also have a product called Venture uh, for small businesses. And so they're competing with this small Apple reseller in a lot of ways that used to do that service work. Amazon today now has a variety of different pr- uh, subscription offerings. One of them is called Subscribe and Save, where they will ship you on a preemptive kind of regular cadence uh, a variety of different consumables, and you think, well, you know, let's say I own a, uh, you know, a pet food company uh, down at the, you know, a retail pet food company. I'm not competing with Amazon. I mean, come on, they're a huge giant. Well, actually, you are because subscribe and save will now send you that 80 pound bag of kibble. Uh, to your doorstep, and you think, well, as a, as a dog owner, do you want to go down to the local guy you've been you've been using for twenty years, or do you want to have Amazon just ship it to you and take one of those to dos off of your list? Well, most people, I think, would prefer to have their consumables, their razor blades, their their toiletries, diapers. Yeah, their diapers just shipped to them, and that's what Amazon knows. So I think people in in, in many categories are actually going to start to increasingly feel the impact of subscription offerings, even though they may be very small businesses. And I think the offensive strategy is to launch your own, um, you know, create your own subscriptions for your customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, an interesting point uh, towards the end is you talked about your biggest competitor for a subscription business is not a rival service. It's actually your customer's inertia in not using it. For instance, I had a, a subscription to... Um, LinkedIn Premium, I think it was, and it wasn't expensive, but I just wasn't using it, so I stopped it. Such a good example. And the magic period 
to really start to affect this inertia is the first 90 days of a subscriber's yeah, relationship. Yeah, yeah. What LinkedIn should have done, Douglas, is to is to is to do everything, pull out all the stops when you subscribe to premium to get you to start using that extra functionality. And there should have been all kinds of bells going off at headquarters in LinkedIn that says Douglas is not using the three extra benefits of premium. He's going to he's going to churn. Because the 90-day window is this window where you as a subscriber have a halo. You've, you've, you've fallen head over heels in love with this company enough to pull out your credit card. That's the opportunity that you, that as a, as a company, have to affect Douglas's change, to affect the way you do business. But beyond 90 days, you've kind of formed your opinion of that company, and, and they've got a little slot in your brain. And, and if it's not what you want it to be, it's very hard to get them to, you know, to change a customer's perspective of your company after the 90-day window. So it's really about onboarding effectively in those first 90 days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you go into a lot of detail about that. And you also talk about a, a company that we're both a customer of, HubSpot, where that's the, the reverse, where they are very, very careful, like a lot of good companies, subscription companies, to make sure you are uh, involved and benefiting from it and possibly even getting some uh, quick victories. So quick wins, it's so important to show inertia. You know, I'll give you a good example of that is constant contact, the email marketing providers a lot of small oh, yeah. businesses use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They used to have, when they onboarded a customer, they took it a very much an, kind of an engineering approach to things. They, they had a who, what, when approach to onboarding. So they said, great, you're a new subscriber of ours. You're now going to send your first email campaign. Congratulations. Who do you want to send it to? And they would force you to upload your database. And, and right there, customers started to churn because what they realized was that was kind of a kludgy process. You had to pull it out of Outlook. You make some CSV file. Well, mm-hmm. what, in, what on earth is a CSV file, et cetera? And so what they did is they changed the order. They, they, in the onboarding experience, they went to what, who, when. And now when you subscribe to Constant Contact, the first thing they ask you to do is create your first campaign. You're a barbershop? Great. I've got 15 stock images of a barbershop. We've got these headlines you can use. Bringing it to life for them on the screen. So right in front of them, the business owner can see their campaign coming to life. And then and only when they're emotionally invested in sending that email – does constant context say, oh, by the way, we've got one little troubling thing we've got to do. It's a second step in our process. You've got to upload it, you know, a database. Here's our 800 number if you have problems with this. But by that time, they've got enough emotional equity with the business owner that they get through that hump. They're mm-hmm. willing to invest the time to upload. It's just a subtle change, but it's it choreographing the relationship you have in those first 90 days. So important. There's so many examples of that in the book, and reading the book just got me thinking about a lot of things in a different way. So, uh, before we wrap up, um, let me ask you a couple of other marketing book questions, John. Uh, sure. Are there any marketing or business related books you've read recently that you recommend? You know, I, 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 the value builder system, we focus on the value of companies. So I, you know, I don't read a lot of marketing books, admittedly, but we, we think more about the value of companies. So I do have a business book that I really love and it's called finish big. And it's written by a guy named Bo Burlingham, who is a, a you know, dear friend. And he writes the story of, of a number of case studies of company owners who have uh, exit. And, uh, you know, it, it, to the extent that you've got listeners who are entrepreneurs, there's a fascinating oh, read yeah. about the exit process. Hmm. Well, it meshes very nicely with yours. Uh, yes, both your books, actually, yeah. 
Um, and I don't, you know, we don't recommend that people only read marketing books. It's just that yeah. that's all we talk about here. Uh, are there any uh, books on your upcoming reading list that you're looking forward to reading? You know, I read the other day that the guy who wrote The Lean Startup, do you remember this guy? I think his name is Eric Reese. I think mm-hmm. he's coming out with a new book. And uh, so I'll be, I'll be picking up that one. Okay. We'll make sure to link that up in the, in the show notes. Which uh, blogs do you, business or marketing blogs, do you enjoy reading to keep up with what's, go- what's going on in your world? I have a quirky, quirky blog that I read every morning. My wife laughs at me because she knows I'm reading it you know, when she comes down from to get her coffee in the morning. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a blog written by a guy named Garth Turner, and he writes basically about the end of the world. <laughs> he thinks that the whole financial well, system Well, you know, is exit going, strategy ties yeah, in with all that. Yeah, I'm all about endings. No, he, he talks about the end of the world, and, and I'm, I'm laughing as I tell you this, but it's a, it's a great counterpoint to the rest of my day because I generally am fairly optimistic about the world, but, but Garth always grounds me about you know the fact that the financial system is going to crater and that the gold prices are going to go through the roof or down tanking, et cetera. So he's a, he's a very interesting, if you have a financial bent at all, yeah. um, he's a fascinating, He's a, he's a very funny writer, uh, and uh, it just uh, it's a fun th- it's a fun way for me at least to wake up in the morning. Garth Turner. Oh, great! Yeah, that definitely gives you some perspective, probably all day long. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so, how can listeners find out more about you and your book? ValueBuilderSystem.com is 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 where we work, help business owners improve the value of their company. And if you just go to AutomaticCustomer.com, you can download a free chapter of the book. Okay, and also at the end of your book, you've got a couple of recommended resources that were really good. I'll make sure to link those up there uh, in the show notes as well. John, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything mentioned are in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And while you're there, you can subscribe to the podcast newsletter to get notified of every new episode, its show notes, links, and other useful things. Also, at marketingbookpodcast.com, there are about 20 free marketing ebooks on a wide variety of topics that lots of people have found helpful. If you're one of the people who's left an iTunes or Stitcher review, I really appreciate it, and it has more impact than you might realize. A one-sentence review shoots the podcast way up in the listings. Finally, I get such a kick out of hearing from my listeners. It really makes my day. To send a message, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and click on the Contact Podcast button. Got an idea or suggestion? Maybe I'm doing something wrong? Let me know. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Till next time. Bye.